Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Kursat C. Petgaz joins us today. He is a doctoral student in English at USC in Los Angeles, and he has become something of an expert in Title IX and its distortions in recent times. Uh, welcome, Mr. Petgaz, and why don't you jump right in and begin with some basic remarks about what Title IX is. Uh, thank you very much for that introduction, Mark. Um, so Title IX is, uh, it was originally passed in the 1970s, I believe, and it was originally meant to balance gender relations in the education sector. And it's very brief. It just basically prohibits gender discrimination in the education system. But over, over the decades, it has become something uh, like a bashing tool against men, unfortunately, at the hands of ideologues like cultural Marxists who have infiltrated the Department of Education. And things have become worse and worse. And I think it eventually reached the peak during the Obama administration where the gender bias against men became especially pernicious. And we are seeing some progress now, uh, thanks to some activism uh, by various parties, including myself. Uh, so that's like a very basic summary of Title IX. It sounds like what we have is a common problem with federal regulations, which is when the regulation is passed, it's, it's put into the institution, it then falls into certain activist hands uh, who make the implementation yes. or application of it go well beyond the original intent. Is this the problem we have here? Uh, yes, this is this is a problem with all the federal agencies, really, uh, infiltration by cultural Marxist ideologues, and then they take these laws that are um, on, on its basis. They read like affirmations of classical liberalism, you know, equal opportunity for everyone, etc. Uh, but then they turn into regulatory monstrosities, if I may use that word, and the Department of Education is an especially bad example of that. So Title IX was uh, first applied uh, in situations like, for example, uh, if there were um, schools that were not allowed to admit women, for example, like decades ago, of course, there are no longer any, like there are very few schools remaining that are like that. Um, there was some um, there was some legislation about that. I'm sorry, not legislation, but litigation uh, about such schools. Then Title IX was applied to athletics. And what happened was the Department of Education has this uh, quota system. So if a school has, let's say, 60% female population and 40% male population, then the school has to devote 60% uh, of its athletic resources to women, which is, of course, a problem because male enrollment is dropping in colleges. And men are more interested in sports than women by average, but the law, of course, ignores that. And then... I, I didn't know about the specific proportionality. That's kind of remarkable. Uh, 
Yes. So Tidal Nine has a three pronged uh, uh, system. So you have to satisfy one of the three prongs, and that's one of the three prongs, I believe. So you have to devote resources that are proportional to the uh, gender en enrollment, and that's just irrational. That was never intended by the original meaning of the statute. But that's not, of course, our uh, subject matter for today. Uh, in 2011, there was a catastrophic uh, Dear Colleague letter, which was, by the way, uh, it circumvents federal law, the uh, administrative, uh, the APA, basically. So it circumvented federal law, and it was originally meant as non-binding, but at the same time, the department insisted that all the educational institutions across the country should abide by this Dear Colleague letter. So they simultaneously argued that it was binding law, but at the same time, not binding law. That was like a massive logical fail there. Um, but what happened was for the first time, Title IX was applied to sexual harassment disputes, and that was extremely skewed. And the Department of Education has actually received massive criticism for this application because, uh, first of all, they erased male victims like they completely... Uh, dismiss the possibility of women being violent, for example. Women are completely typecast as passive victims and men as violent aggressors. So it's actually very stereotypical. And also, um, it was one of the myths that was promulgated is that female accusers never lie, that there's this rape culture, there's rape culture that is fostering on campuses. Uh, and in order to balance that, there has to be aggressive government intervention to help female accusers. So that was the predominant narrative around 2011. And the federal government launched a very aggressive campaign of eroding due process protections for accused men on college campuses. And there has been a massive backlash. Uh, most of the backlash, of course, came from uh, conservative camps. So this evolved into a culture war issue. Uh, even though around 2011, I think there was more bipartisan support for the Dear Colleague letter, but based on the mistakes that they have made, conservatives galvanized around due process, and they saw the ideological underpinnings uh, of the Dear Colleague letter. Uh, and there were also some liberal giants uh, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, Janet Napolitano, who also criticized the Dear Colleague letter. And there were, I believe there are more than 250 uh, rulings on the federal and state levels that are favorable to accused male students right now. So because male students took their grievances to real courts of law and more often than not, they have prevailed. Uh, so that's the current scenario right now. And the Biden administration wants to undo all the due process protections that were implemented by uh, the previous Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos who had a more even-handed approach to these issues, like she wanted to protect the rights of both the accusers and the accused, by the Biden administration and specifically her appointee, Catherine Lehman, now wants to undo all those changes and bring back the bad old days of uh, the Obama guidance. Hmm. And this power of the federal government really comes down to money, I gather, because so many research universities really live off federal funding, uh, which the government may halt if it finds yes. discrimination yes. has happened, correct? Um, yes, actually, financial blackmail was the essence of Title IX uh, implementation or enforcement during the Obama administration. And uh, in theory, it's very difficult to pull that off because it's a lot of money and no institution will you know, just accept that loss of federal funding. 
but even though it is theoretical, um, it was actually very successful. And Catherine Lehman made very good use of that uh, weaponizing uh, threats of loss of federal funding in order to enforce her partisan agenda. Uh, so, uh, yes, it was very successful and schools actually went along and it was it took maybe um, like six to seven years before there was any real pushback. The mainstream press was also very much lavishing, uh, you know, attention to these cases. Uh, and there were a few high profile uh, debunked cases like the Rolling Stone, for example, ran an article which was debunked, for example. And the Department of Education never apologized for its role in that particular article. Uh, but what happened was um, the Department of Education enforced the creation of these Title IX tribunals. And the majority of these Title IX coordinators and administrators are women. And the majority of the accusers are women. And uh, the majority, the overwhelming majority of those who are expelled from colleges for these sexual infractions are also women. I'm sorry, are men. So it's obviously a very discriminatory um, policy. And one investigative journalist called Claire Best, uh, with whom I've been recently in contact, called it a Ponzi scheme, which is definitely true, uh, because there was these consultants who reaped the benefits of Title IX consultancy from these, this cottage industry uh, of you know, administrative overreach. Uh, so there are many actors involved. And gender bias is one of the main problems here, but also conflicts of interest and government overreach are other major themes, I would say. You know, we have an interesting demographic issue here with the rise of female students. Uh, we're now at 58% female undergrads, 42% yes. male in America today. And that's probably going to break 60% in a few years. Uh, how has that affected all of this? Um, it's interesting. I think Quillet ran an article uh, saying that the more female majority these institutions become, the more heavier they skew towards the left uh, because of this echo chamber effect. Uh, so it's not just the fact that uh, women are more predisposed to, let's say, progressive thinking, which I don't think is necessarily true. But the, the fact is um, these administrators, this diversity uh, bureaucrats are very heavily partisans of identitarian left and they don't really brook any criticism. They don't really like any, you know, meaningful challenge to their authority. And their rule is very much entrenched in major in universities right now. Uh, and their diktats are like very difficult to challenge, which is why we have been relying on external, um, intervention, again, through the Office for Civil Rights, and it took a very uphill battle in order to create these cases. But now we are seeing some progress with the Office for Civil Rights investigating some major institutions for discrimination against men. Uh, and as I mentioned, that was, very, that was a very challenging process because that particular institution is the reason why these institutions skew very heavily towards the left, towards you know, identitarian feminism in the first place. Uh, but we did make some progress. And how did you, a uh, grad student in English, get involved in, in all of this uh, federal regulation stuff? Um, so I was involved in um, men's rights activism. Uh, like uh, I was, for example, familiar with Warren Farrell's The Myth of Male Power, which is considered one of the most uh, seminal works of men's rights activism. Uh, before I actually uh, came to the United States for my PhD degree, uh, and I was also familiar with some rulings from the European Court of Human Rights, 
which you know protects the rights of men in general. Uh, so that was something on my radar. Um, I guess like before I even came to the United States, uh, but I myself was accused in a Title IX case, and uh, it was actually very outrageous. I think even by the partisan and skewed standards of these Title IX offices, the allegations against me were exceptionally stupid, if I may say that. So, um, for example, the accuser said uh, he was manipulating my emotions and lying to me by telling me that he was not attracted to me. So that was one of the allegations. So I was accused of sexual harassment for basically uh, rebuffing the advances of uh, a female martial artist. And I was recovering from a surgery at that time. So uh, she was actually investigated for sexual assault uh, and I wasn't. So it was an interesting case. Uh, but it was taken up by the Office for Civil Rights. And that was the first complaint that I filed with the Office for Civil Rights that was actually accepted for prosecution. And it has a complex history. My allegations were found to be in good faith and objectively reasonable by one federal attorney. But then her supervisor, who is very partisan, who has ties to Gloria Allred, and her name is Laura Fire, dismissed the case. Uh, then I went on a hunger strike. So I was very pissed off because it was a presidential case. Uh, it was also one of the first class action cases on behalf of men. So that was a lot of uh, the stakes were very high. Uh, so she resigned from her position as a result of that hunger strike. Uh, and yes, that's uh, probably one of the very few cases of a high ranking federal bureaucrat uh, just resigning from her job for discriminating against men. Um, and then the Department of Education launched other... Some of this is amazing, yes. Kursad. I mean, how in the world did seemingly intelligent and educated people ever sign on to such absurd enterprises? Mm-hmm. Didn't they know that it might collapse and could harm them? Um, that's a good question. But, you know, common sense is usually jutted out of the window in these cases. And the Department of Education, in at least two cases during the Obama administration, specifically chided educational institutions for using the reasonable person standard, uh, I believe against one letter against Stanford University and in another letter against Frostburg State University. So uh, quick, quickly, quickly, well, yeah. what is the reasonable person standard? I mean, it's hard to define, but I, I would say that in it uh, requires a certain uh, element of common sense in evaluating these cases. And common sense is, of course, a big component of, you know, uh, common law jurisprudence. Uh, but these Title IX brokers were so partisan and they were so uh, biased in their crusade to stamp out this heresy of, you know, sexual harassment uh, that they wanted to jettison the reasonable person standard out of the window. And it's not the only procedural protection. Like, uh, for example, they want a single person to uh, oversee the whole process. So they don't want, you know, separation of powers, for example, is another principle, a bedrock principle of democracy, but they don't like that either. So they're really attacking some of the most standard principles of Western uh, civilization, if I may say so. And I don't think it's, uh, I don't think their interests are limited to just uh, jettisoning out these principles for the purposes of sexual harassment issues, because, you know, sexual harassment is a sensitive issue. Um, uh, and I think what they are doing is they are using this uh, sexual harassment as a front to implement their agenda, and then they want to broaden their scope to everything else. 
that's what I think these cultural Marxists want to achieve. Uh, so that's part of the long-term plan. What happened to you a while back in graduate school? So um, I, I was struggling with like multiple health issues and I requested an extension. Uh, and I know that such a uh, request for extension are routinely granted to PhD students. I know PhD students who took like eight or nine years to complete their PhD degrees. So I was at the end of my fifth year. I requested an extension for a sixth year and it was denied basically. Uh, and even though, as I mentioned, it's routinely granted to other students. And then I had to deal with other forms of discrimination and harassment, like one radical uh, feminist professor, Hilary Shore, uh, vetoed my uh, prospectus, for example. Then I had to replace her at the last minute with uh, somebody who is more sympathetic. Uh, and then I had to submit my first dissertation chapter on short notice. And uh, for example, it was evaluated by English professors who was outside of our department that they said this is satisfactory, you know, for a first chapter. Uh, but at that time, I think uh, they galvanized around, and there was a lot of publicity about the other investigations, other complaints that I filed with the Department of Education. And these two radical feminist professors, Hilary Shaw and Margaret Russell, basically worked together to veto my dissertation. So my PhD was denied. Um, I received another MA degree because I had finished all my work uh, towards my second MA, but basically they denied my PhD degree. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Most graduate students are pretty insecure and eager to please their superiors. I certainly was. What was it about you that gave you the will to stand up and say no? Um, I don't know. I think I'm a stubborn person in general. Um, I don't have a fixed answer to your question. Uh, but I think it's a combination of innate stubbornness. And another reason is um, I'm quite familiar with European law, like especially with the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights, which is considered a very prestigious institution in Turkey. And these regulations and all this administrative overreach and all these extreme gender politics does not exist under European law. So I know that it was... Um, ultimately not something that uh, will perhaps survive rational scrutiny on, over the long term uh, because it was a partisan assault on due process and yes, they were very powerful for some time, but now there has been a lot of pushback. Um, so I guess it's a combination of those two factors. One, uh, I'm a stubborn person and two, um, I'm, I, I do have a background in human rights activism uh, and I know that these tribunals are not supported under European law. So that was, it was a combination of those two factors. Where are you from? Um, I grew up mostly in Turkey and also in Germany. So what was the complaint you filed against Harvard? Uh, so the complaint against Harvard was uh, Harvard, Harvard's association with the American Psychological Association uh, for endorsing their new guidelines. 
uh, which rule that which basically proposition that um, traditional masculinity is harmful. And that's ridiculous. Of course, APA doesn't maintain that femininity is harmful in any of its forms, but it's it was a very blatant attempt at social engineering. Uh, and uh, there was actually a lot of positive coverage about that because there was a lot of pushback against that particular agenda, I think, uh, which actually shows that culturally there is a pushback against this cultural Marxist agenda. So we are making progress, I believe. So it's not as bad as, let's say, maybe 10 or 15 years ago when it comes to gender politics. Uh, but that complaint was dismissed based on a procedural reason. Uh, they classified APA's uh, materials as curricular materials, and there's a subclause of Title IX, uh, which says that Title IX does not apply to curricular materials. Uh, but it's not entirely true because the Department of Education has actually monitored Title IX, I, I'm, I'm sorry, curricular materials under Title IX before. Uh, so it was another blatant mistruth. Uh, that they relied on to dismiss that particular complaint. But other complaints have been successful and we have seen progress about those. And how about the complaint against Yale? Uh, yes, I filed a complaint on my own. Uh, it was the Harvard complaint that was in association with two lawyers. Uh, but the Yale complaint was uh, instated uh, as a result of the hunger strike. So there were two results of the hunger strike. One of them was Lord of Fire's termination. The other one was the uh, the Department of Education launching an investigation against Yale, and it was uh, in the national news uh, because you know Yale is like uh, it's a big school, and it was unprecedented. The legal theory was also unprecedented. What I did was to argue that uh, because men now constitute a minority in the education sector, that affirmative action for women is basically outdated. And it's interesting because uh, colleges offer affirmative action for women in admissions, in employment preferences, in scholarships, in single-sex professional programs, in women's centers, uh, medical centers for women, uh, as well as women's studies departments. So all of these are sex-specific benefits that are available to the female majority. And what we did was to argue that we, do, we are not asking for affirmative action for men, but we want equal like playing grounds so that the male minority can compete with the female majority on equal footing. And that argument was granted uh, for the first time in a complaint against USC, which was dismissed by the San Francisco office, but then reinstated by the Trump administration. Uh, and then uh, it was, and that argument again uh, came into play in the investigation against Yale as well. And that's when I went public with my efforts and there was all the press coverage. I encouraged other people to file their own complaints, which they did. And now there are hundreds of investigations that follow that precedent. So we have made some progress about that. Are more stories of the abuse of Title IX coming out? I mean, has the public's ignorance of them been part of their historic success? Um, that's a good question. I think uh, secrecy was definitely a big component. And Title IX administrators routinely advise the accused to stay silent about you know, their predicaments. So it's definitely part of the design. And uh, the Department of Education actually refused to release its resolution letters for quite some time. They were released during the Trump administration for the first time, as far as I know. And it was only after that those records were released that I was able to study them and then actually uh, just really uh, understand the extent of the discrimination that the Department of Education has engaged in against 
boys and men. And it's really stunning. Uh, it's not just in sexual harassment disputes, but in other issues like athletics or grading, for example, uh, the Department of Education routinely dismiss complaints that they receive from boys and men, as well as their advocates, but aggressively pursuing complaints that were filed by women, even if they lacked merit, you know, even if they lacked logic. So it was very partisan. It was very aggressive. Um, male stu female students who contacted the Office for Civil Rights uh, were 24 times more likely to uh, receive favorable resolutions than male students. And only 1.1% of male students who contacted, office for, who contacted the Office for Civil Rights uh, had success with their claims. So those were the extreme odds. And luckily, I think we have made some progress as a result of publicity, just exposing how corrupt the system is uh, and filing complaints. Like there's, there's been a lot of grassroots support. Uh, so that's the current situation right now. But right now, there are hundreds of complaints that are pending uh, that have been accepted for investigation based on the USC precedents. And these female-only uh, programs are currently being investigated, and hopefully they will become a thing of the past. Finally, because what do you think is going to happen to this situation in the coming years? Um, I think there will be uh, a greater sense of balance as we move forward. And part of the reason is because the Office for Civil Rights is now launching these investigations against Brown, against Stanford, uh, against Georgetown, against Yale. There's one pending against Cornell, um, which is arguably the worst of all, like the worst case of discrimination that we have observed among all these institutions. Uh, and because the federal government can cut off funding, I think these institutions are probably bound to comply. And as I said, we have been able to generate some positive publicity as well. So that also had an impact. Uh, but I guess like the bottom line is, I don't really know. Uh, they may just dig in, you know, their heels and they may choose to fight back because this has been the entrenched system and it's the statu quo right now. Uh, so we don't really know how responsive they will be to change. Um, and it has also become something of a partisan issue with Democrats are kind of like um, are more likely to support these female only programs while Republicans are opposed to them. Although I don't think it's very clear cut. We have also seen some support from Democrats. And I think the current Biden administration has so far continued investigating these female only programs. Uh, I don't know if that will change with the new upcoming Title IX guidelines. Uh, but the current uh, person who runs the Office for Civil Rights, Catherine Lehman, is the engineer of all these, you know, partisan policies in the first place. So unless her views have changed or evolved over time, which is possible, but I don't know if, how likely it is, uh, we may see a return to, you know, the same old partisanship that we have observed during the Obama administration. Kursat Petgaz, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.